We have the power to change people's sexual attitudes and behavior for the better in a way that nothing else does. Social sex videos on Make Love Not Porn are enormously reassuring because we celebrate real-world everything, real-world bodies, real-world hair, real-world penis size, real-world breast size, real-world vulvas. And the reason that's important is because you can talk body positivity all you like. You can preach self-love until you're blue in the face. At the end of the day, nothing makes people feel good about their own bodies, like seeing people who are no one's idea of aspirational body types getting turned on by each other, desiring each other, having an amazing time in bed. In a world where every message popular culture sends us every day is, you are not hot, you are not attractive, you're not sexually desirable, unless you are this skinny, you've got six-pack abs, you look like this. Our members that Make Love Not Porn write to us and say, you made me feel better about my own body. Welcome, I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, we spoke to Jackie Drizano about her career as a booking agent and venue manager in the entertainment industry, and about her incredible resiliency overcoming serious tragedies in her life. Today's guest is another amazing woman. The first half of Cindy Gallup's career would have been enough for most people. She was instrumental in building Bartle, Bogle and Hagerty into a global advertising firm, opening and leading a lot of growth in both their Asia and US offices. Some of you may be familiar with her incredibly popular TED Toll from 2009 that kind of like helped her start this venture. But for almost 15 years now, Cindy has blazed her way into new uncharted territory. Her company, make love not porn is driving a really important conversation around sex sex education and consent in the process of building a company cindy has also become a powerful voice in support of women entrepreneurs and women equality in general an important warning from a personal standpoint i walked away from my conversation with cindy inspired and energized i understand that discussing sex in our society and a venture that advances the way that we as humans relate to sex is going to make some people uncomfortable. And if you're one of those people and choose to stop listening now, I completely respect your choice. But if you're on the fence, I strongly encourage you to keep listening because Cindy, as I said, is extraordinary. And there is some really good business advice about entrepreneurship in here. And it is a really important conversation. Thank you. Cindy, welcome to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. You are here because we have a mutual friend who like the comment that you made on LinkedIn when you were pointing out the fact that Facebook wasn't letting you buy ads for your business. And then also you had this incredible, fabulous tagline on your LinkedIn profile. You are the Michael Bay of business and you love to blow shit up. That intrigued my curiosity. And then you also have a remarkable history in our industry. I, I worked in advertising for a while too. So why don't we start, give our listeners a sense of what you're doing now and then like a high level view of your career and how you got where you're now? Sure. I mean, you know, the answer to what I'm doing now is I'm the founder and CEO of Make Love Not Porn. We are pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. My business came out of the fact that I date younger men and realized 14, 15 years ago, before anybody else did, that 
through direct personal experience, that when we don't talk openly and honestly about sex in the real world, porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. So I launched Make Love Not Porn at TED in 2009. We are the world's first and only user-generated, human-curated social sex video sharing platform. If porn is the Hollywood blockbuster movie, Make Love Not Porn is the badly needed documentary. We, we are a unique window onto the funny, messy, loving, wonderful ways we all have sex in the real world. We are sex education through real world demonstration. We're socializing sex, making it easier to talk about to promote consent, communication, good sexual values, and good sexual behavior. So we call ourselves the social sex revolution. The revolutionary part is not the sex, it's the fact we're making it social. Um, my background is 37 years working in brand building, marketing, and advertising. 16 of those years at the same advertising agency, Bartle Bogle Hegarty BBH, for whom I started out running big global pieces of business out of their London office back in 1989. Moved to Singapore in 1996 to help start up and run BBH Asia Pacific, BBH's first office outside London. And the reason I'm based in New York is I moved here 24 years ago to open up BBH's American office, which began as me in a room with a phone, starting an ad agency in the world's toughest advertising marketplace, which was a lively old ride, but went pretty well. And, you know, in answer to your question of how did I get here by complete and total accident, I have never consciously intentionally planned anything in my life or my career. I love my ex-boss, John Hegarty's mantra, do interesting things and interesting things will happen to you. And that's how I've lived my life. Over the course of your career, obviously, you came, I assume, to articulate and figure out who you wanted to be as a leader as you, as you were building multiple companies outside uh, of the UK. You said mentioned in Asia first and in the US afterwards. So what were some of the key moments as you started you know, on the role from marketer to actually leader and, and builder of companies where, where you start to articulate who you are as a leader and what are the things that are important to you? So I've been asked many, many times over the course of my career in interviews, you know, what is your definition of leadership? What is the def definition of a leader? And I always give the same answer. And it's very simple. A leader is somebody who puts their people ahead of themselves. That's it. Leadership is putting your people ahead of yourself. It's as simple as that. And that is absolutely the lesson that I've taken away from my career and what I've always striven to do as a leader. Were there moments with you when you were on your way to becoming a leader and, and experiences that led you to come to that view, maybe some stories, anecdotes that you're willing to share? First of all, I was enormously lucky in my advertising career. And I was lucky for two reasons. Number one, I was enormously lucky because I was never sexually harassed in advertising in a way that ended my career. And by the way, I was absolutely sexually harassed. But unlike many, many other women, I was never sexually harassed in a way that resulted in retaliation and being forced out of my agency and forced out of the industry. And that happened to so many women in our industry and is why our industry has hemorrhaged vast amounts of female talent over the years. That's number one, why I was lucky. The second reason I was lucky was because I can count the number of female bosses that I had in my entire advertising career on the fingers of one hand, two. Advertising is as male-dominated today 
as it was when I came into it back in the late 80s. So the second reason I was lucky was because I pretty much always worked for men. And I was lucky enough to work for men who saw my potential before I did myself, who wanted me to succeed, who championed me and gave me many, many opportunities. And that is the complete opposite of most women's experience in advertising. So I was enormously lucky in that respect. And that's why I've endeavored to do the same thing for the people that I've led subsequently. And then, as I mentioned earlier, I stayed at BBH 16 years, which is an extraordinary long period of time in our industry, especially, you know, more recently. And so, you know, over the years, people would ask me, you know, why I was a BBH lifer. And they would say, you know, is it the great work? Is it the terrific people? Is it the brilliant strategic thinking? And, and you know, all of those things contributed in some part. But at the end of the day, the reason was because BBH had more integrity and principles than any other agency I'd ever worked at. And that matters more to me than anything else about where I choose to work. I knew that if a client ever called my bosses with a problem with me, they would be on my side first. They would have my back. And again, that's not something many people in agencies, especially many women in agencies, can say. And so, you know, all of that was terrific learning for ultimately being a leader myself. You're raising a lot of very interesting topics. You talk about the integrity of the agency. And I think that expands to the overall the service business. So when you're thinking about integrity of a service business, what are some of the key principles that you believe are fundamental for service businesses to be successful? It's very, very simple. I'm a big fan of radical simplicity. I like to keep things very simple. Everything in life and business starts with you and your values. And so I encourage both individuals and businesses to conduct this exercise if they've never done it. Take a long, hard look into yourself and identify what you stand for, what you believe in, what you value, what you're all about, and then live your life and operate your business according to that. I'm a big fan of be your own filter. So, you know, you referenced my LinkedIn, Twitter, etc. bio tagline. I like to blow shit up. I'm the Michael Bay of business. How that came about was many years ago, I was talking to a potential consultancy client because I, I continue to work as a consultant and a personal coach and a public speaker alongside Make Love Not Porn. And so I was talking about my approach to consulting. And I said to them, I consult very selectively, only for clients and brands who want to change the game in their particular sector. So you come to me for radical, innovative, groundbreaking, transformative. I don't do status quo. And then lightheartedly off the cuff, I said, I like to blow shit up. I'm the Michael Bear business. And everyone laughed. And I left the meeting and I thought, actually, that's a great way of summing up what I do. And I've been using it as my tagline ever since. But I use it, you know, not as a bit of whimsy or a bit of creativity, a bit of fun. I use that tagline entirely deliberately because when I characterize what I do in that way, it attracts me the people who want what I do. It repels the ones who don't. And I want to repel the ones who don't because they're a waste of time, effort, and money. And so my message to every business is identify what you stand for, identify your values, put them out there. You will attract the clients 
the customers that you want. You'll repel the ones you don't. You want to do that. And that's how you operate with authenticity as a business. That's fabulous. When did you realize along your career that you were interested primarily in radical change, you know, through your career as, a, as an executive? Um, I didn't. I live my own philosophies. All I'm ever doing is I'm living and working my values. And the fact that people think that's radical says a great deal more about society and the business world than it does about me. That is absolutely true. So what are some of your values? Absolutely what we've been talking about, authenticity, integrity, doing the right thing in terms of your own beliefs. And what that means, very importantly, is basically, and again, this is what I advise everybody to do, individuals and businesses alike. It's very important to not give a damn what anybody else thinks. Fear of what other people will think is the single most paralyzing dynamic in business and in life. You will never own the future if you care what other people think. And so I don't give a damn what anyone else thinks. That's fabulous. So let's talk about some of the things that you've been doing recently. You you launched Make Love Not Porn. And also, I see you're a very vocal supporter of uh, female entrepreneurs and the um, the gaps that are that exist right now in the world in the accessibility to funding and VC. What are some of the key changes that you believe need to happen? In an ideal world, male investors would open their eyes to the fact that funding female founders is far and away the best investment you can possibly make because that's not happening right now. Last year, only 2% of all venture capital went to female founders. That's out bloody rageous. And less than 1% of it went to black female founders. So I would like male investors to wake up to the fact that they are turning down free money by not funding women. But because it's going to take a very long time for that to happen, because sexism and bias is rife, I basically encourage women to make an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money. And I articulate like that deliberately because that is how much money I want women to make. And so I encourage women to unashamedly set out to make an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money. Because when we make that money, we can then use it to fund other women, to help other women, support other women, donate to other women. We need to build our own financial ecosystem because the white male one isn't working for us. Are there groups of women are, that already exist that you're working with that are starting to do that if, if female entrepreneurs are looking for support and funding? Oh my God, 15 million groups of women exist doing that all around the world. We are fighting this battle together every single day. There are 15 million groups and organizations of women supporting women um, in every aspect of this. The trouble is that none of us have access to the same levels of capital that white men do. And that's the problem. So let's talk about Make Love Not Porn. You, you said you started it from a personal interest, if you will. What are some of the key tenets and you know, how do people participate in that? Everyone can participate by going to makelovenotporn.tv, signing up and taking out a subscription. Um, here's the thing about Make Love Not Porn. As an utterly unique venture, we have an utterly unique capability. We have the power to change people's sexual attitudes and behavior for the better in a way that nothing else does. So a couple of examples of that are social sex videos on Make Love Not Porn are enormously reassuring. 
because we celebrate real world everything, real world bodies, real world hair, real world penis size, real world breast size, real world vulvas. And the reason that's important is because you can talk body positivity all you like. You can preach self-love until you're blue in the face. At the end of the day, nothing makes people feel good about their own bodies, like seeing people who are no one's idea of aspirational body types getting turned on by each other, desiring each other, having an amazing time in bed. In a world where every message popular culture sends us every day is, you are not hot, you are not attractive, you're not sexually desirable unless you are this skinny, you've got six-pack abs, you look like this. Our members at Make Love Not Porn write to us and say, you made me feel better about my own body. One man wrote and said, my girlfriend and I now feel able to be more open and central with each other because you made each of us feel better about our own bodies. Then, importantly, we celebrate real-world emotion, love, intimacy, feelings. And that's crucial because, again, all around us in popular culture, movies, TV, Netflix, we see many creative expressions and narratives of relationships, but we never see the actual sex. On Make Love Not Porn, you see the actual sex, but you also see the relationships. Because in our videos, those two things are indivisible. And when I say that, I don't just mean that in our many coupled, partnered, recent videos, you see healthy, loving relationship dynamics within sex. In our many solo videos, because we have many masturbation videos, male, female, trans, non-binary, in those videos, you see what it's like to have a healthy relation with yourself, with your own body, your own genitals, your own sexuality. And, you know, what I find especially interesting is I designed Make Love Not Porn to be fully gender equal, diverse, and inclusive. And it is. Our members and our contributors, we call our Make Love Not Porn stars, span the full spectrum. But in the 10 years we've been operating as a business, we've observed that Make Love Not Porn is especially a revelation to men. Because we are something that men can find nowhere else on the internet, which is a safe space where men can be and watch other men being open, emotional, and vulnerable around sex. Probably more men write appreciative emails to us and leave appreciative comments than anybody else. You wouldn't believe the number of men who write to us and say, I just watched my first video of Make Love Not Porn and afterwards I cried. I've been saying for years, I wish society understood the opposite of what it thinks is true. Women enjoy sex just as much as men, and men are just as romantic as women. Yet neither gender is allowed to openly celebrate that fact, and we'd all be a whole lot better off if they were. I picked up a Twitter exchange last year between two men. One man had tweeted, and he was obviously joking, hey guys, got this really weird fetish, got this kink where I want to watch porn, where people are honest, loving, loyal, decent, really like each other. Hit me up with your hottest links, please. And another man responded, he said, there's this website called Make Love Not Porn, where you can watch real couples making love. He said, I watched a video where the woman said to her man, I love you while they're making love. He said, sincerely, I cried when I saw that. That's the impact we have on men. We are one of the solutions to toxic masculinity. That is fabulous. The business has been going on for over 10 years. You said it started with a, with a TEDx. How did you start to articulate the vision? And then was it fully firm in, in, in terms of your vision as you're articulated right now? Or what were sort of like the, the stages that led you to really come to the position that you have now? 
as I said earlier, everything in my life and career has happened by accident. And Make Love Not Porn is a complete and total accident. So how it came about was, as I mentioned, 14, 15 years ago, I was dating younger men and realizing through my direct personal experience that I was encountering what happens when two things converge. And I stress the dual convergence because most people think it's only one thing. I realized I was experiencing what happens when today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. When those two factors converge, porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. So I found myself encountering a number of sexual behavioral memes in bed. I went, whoa, I don't know where that behavior is coming from. I thought, gosh, if I'm experiencing this, other people must be as well. I didn't know that because 14, 15 years ago, nobody was talking about this. No one's writing about it. This was me in isolation as a naturally action-oriented person going, I'm going to do something about this. So 13 years ago, I put up no money, a tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com, purely a little side venture, which in its original iteration was just copy. The construct was porn world versus real world. Here's what happens in the porn world. Here's what really happens in the real world. I launched it at TED, uh, the Global TED Conference, in 2009. I became the only TED speaker to say the words, come on my face, on the TED stage, six times succession. The talk went viral as a result, and it drove this extraordinary global response to my tiny website that I had never anticipated. Thousands of people wrote to me from every single country in the world, young and old, men and female, straight and gay, pouring their hearts out, telling me things about their sex lives and their porn-watching habits they had never told anybody else before. And I realized I had inadvertently uncovered a huge global social issue. And so that was what made me feel, oh my God, I now have a personal responsibility. I have to take Make Love Not Porn forwards in a way that will make it much more far-reaching, helpful, and effective. And I also saw an opportunity to do what I believe in very strongly, which is the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. I saw the opportunity for a big business solution to this huge untapped global need. And I use the word big advisedly because even 13 years ago, when I was concepting this, I knew that if I wanted to counter the global impact of porn as default sex education, I would have to come up with something that at least had the potential one day to be just as mass, just as mainstream, and just as all pervasive in our society as porn currently is. And so that was what led me to come up with design and build make love not porn.tv. So you got an incredible response from your TED talk but we're still talking about a pretty radical message and business concept to take out into mainstream business. What were some of the early challenges and even the current challenges that you're facing and, and how are you tackling them? Sure. So what, what I had no idea of when I embarked on this venture was that I and my tiny team would fight an enormous battle every single day to build this business. Basically because every piece of business infrastructure any other tech startup gets to take for granted. We can't. The small print always says no adult content. 
And this is all pervasive across every single area of the business in ways that people outside the sphere don't realize. I can't get funded. I couldn't get banked. It took me four years to find one bank here in America that would allow me to open a business bank account for Make Love Not Porn. My biggest ongoing day-to-day -day obstacle is payments. PayPal won't work with us. Stripe can't. Mainstream credit card processors won't. We have to work with adult-friendly payment processors who, because the adult industry is nowhere else to go, charge extortionate rates. I pay out 12% of my revenue every month in payment processing fees versus the standard mainstream rate, which is 3% or less. That's a massive business growth inhibitor. Every single tech service I need to use to operate my video sharing platform, hosting, encoding, encrypting, the terms of service always say no adult content. In every single case, I've had to go to the people at the top of the company, explain what I'm doing, beg to be allowed to use their service, Sometimes they let me, sometimes they don't. This is a very labor-intensive process, and I never get to work with best-in-class of anything. We had to build our entire video sharing platform from scratch ourselves as proprietary technology because existing streaming services will not stream adult content. I am so jealous of friends who built video startups on top of Vimeo. Quick, easy, simple, cheap, I can't do that. Even something as simple as sending our membership emails out. You know, MailChimp won't work with adult content. Clavio won't. We were rejected by so many email providers till we found SendGrid who would. Um, to give you an idea of the ridiculousness of this, some years ago, I needed a contract user experience designer. I put a perfectly standard job description up on Upwork. 20 minutes later, Upwork took it down and told us we're not allowed to advertise jobs on their platform because we are make love, not porn. Everything is an obstacle. And the biggest business growth inhibitor of all is that we are banned from advertising anywhere. I cannot advertise Make Love Not Porn on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, Reddit, Google, YouTube, and on mainstream media. And by the way, it's not just us. There is a gendered a bias at work. Any female-lens sexual health and wellness venture can't advertise either. Menstruation ventures can't advertise. Menopause ventures can't. Fertility ventures can't. In the meantime, male sexual health and wellness is not a problem. Erectile dysfunction solutions, welcome everywhere. So those are the barriers that we face. And so I've spent the past 13 years parallel pathing two things, working to build Make Love Not Porn and working to change the cultural and business context around it. Because when you have a truly world-changing startup, you have to change the world to fit it, not the other way around. And the good news is I'm finally seeing all of that work pay off. The barriers are falling. That's fantastic. And especially for, you know, all the other ventures that can benefit from the work that you're doing. What were some of the, you mentioned some of the barriers are falling. What were some of like the key moments and successes that sort of give you the conviction to keep going on in the past few years? So first of all, I've kept Make Love Not Porn operational for the past 10 years on just $3 million of funding. And that's an extraordinary feat. In a world where 75% of all startups fail within the first five years, and where many, many white male-founded tech startups fail within a few years on hundreds of millions of dollars of funding. So that's a huge success. So I am now working to raise a serious round of funding, $20 million, because it's about time, 
to scale makelovenotporn.tv and to build out what I'm calling the Make Love Not Porn universe, which is a social sex ecosystem of a suite of product expansions designed to be very compelling businesses in their own right, but to act as growth engines for the core business. Because when I can't advertise, I have to build solutions to my own problems to grow paying members and revenue. And the thing that's really encouraging me now is, so, you know, here's how I find my investors. Because I know my investors are out there. There are many of them. And by the way, there are many of them in every single country in the world. They are impossible to find by the usual means because they all have one thing in common. Your willingness to fund Make Love Not Porn is entirely a function of your personal sexual journey. It's a function of your personal lens on sex and sexuality, shaped by your own experience. And I have no way to research and target for that. Especially because sex is the one area where you cannot tell from the outside what anybody thinks on the inside. The people who look like they would totally get it, don't. The people who look like complete prudes do. And so my strategy has been, I put what I'm doing out there all the time. I promote Make Love Not Porn and the fact I'm raising funding across all my social channels. I do every media interview I'm invited to. I go on every podcast because I have to rely on making synaptic connections happen that will attract those investors to me. This is obviously compared to, you know, founders of more conventional ventures. This is a very long, slow, painful, and highly inefficient process. But the good news is it works. And the even better news is that in the past year, it's been working extraordinarily well. I have been getting a ton of incoming investor interest. And by the way, I'm gobsmacked how effective LinkedIn is in this context. Because I absolutely promote the fact I'm raising funding on LinkedIn all the time. And I've had so many investors reach out to me through LinkedIn and say, you know, I'd like to talk more about what you're doing. And so I find that enormously encouraging. I'm very optimistic about my ability to raise this funding. Are these investors uh, angel type investors at this stage for this round? Or you have formal VC funds in it as well? I'm absolutely not targeting um, VC funds because we are not a, a VC friendly venture. The investors who reach out to me fall broadly into uh, three groups, angels as in individuals, or, although some of them have funds they also manage um, personally, uh, family officers um, <clears throat> who obviously are free to deploy their funds in any way that they want, and especially, by the way, next-gen family officers, where Gen Z and millennials have a say in how those funds are deployed, because Gen Z and millennials absolutely get how important Make Love Not Born is. And then the third area is impact investors, investors who get that we are the biggest social impact you could possibly have on the entire world while also making a huge amount of money. Speaking of impact, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, which is that in order to do good, you need to create a business that does good and that creates a lot of money for the investors. When did you start forming that vision and, and how is that manifested into maybe also the advice that you do in your consultant work on the side? That belief is absolutely born out of 37 years working in brand building, marketing, advertising. I want to live in a world where 
the way it works in business is the more good you do, the more money you make, the more money you make, the more good you do, you know. And so, again, you know, I live my own philosophies. And so I designed, um, you know, I encourage everyone to design their own business model. And so I designed my own business model, which I consider the business model of the future, which is shared values plus shared action equals shared profit, financial profit and social profit. And what I mean by that is when brands and businesses come together with their audiences, and by audiences I mean employees, consumers, analysts, you know, stakeholders, whoever that audience may be, when you come together on the basis of values that you all share, which, by the way, is the most important requirement for a good relationship in life as much as business. You will never truly bond with someone who doesn't share the same values. When you come together around shared values, and you are then enabled to collectively and collaboratively co-act on those values to walk the talk together, you can then make things happen in the real world that will benefit consumers, benefit society, and benefit the brand and its business. And in fact, my first startup, if we ran the world, was co-action software designed to help businesses um, integrate this business model. And Harvard Business School reached out when we were 12 months old in beta and said, this model is so innovative, we want to write it up as a case study and teach it which was fantastic. You know, so If Round the World exists as a Harvard Business School case study, unfortunately, I had to back burner If We Ran the World when Make Love Not Porn blew up because even I, superhuman as I am, cannot run two startups simultaneously. But I designed Make Love Not Porn around exactly that business model, shared values plus shared action equals shared profit. And so you know, that is the business model I want to see everybody adopting. You started startups at a much later point in your career that the lore about entrepreneurs is, you know, everybody's like, oh, you should start your business right away. What were some of the drivers to start your own business? And what were some of the challenges and advantages that you had by starting your own business after having a full-on career in, in advertising for larger companies? First of all, you've talked about a misconception there because here in the US, the fastest rate at which people are starting um, companies is, is in the over 50 age group. There are far more older entrepreneurs than younger. Okay, so let's correct that misconception. And also, data has proven that older entrepreneurs are, are way more successful than younger ones. Secondly, bear in mind, I'd already started businesses. You know, I'd helped to start BBH Asia Pacific. I started BBH US. So I already had an entrepreneurial track record before I started you know, if we're around the world and make love, not porn. And thirdly, in both the cases of my more recent tech ventures, I go back to my previous response. I started them by accident. I didn't, you know, consciously set out to. The world said, we love this. You know, we want it. I'm going to move to more of the personal type questions. What is a passion that you have outside your business and your work and that has maybe impacted your work life? Everything we've talked about, because as I said, what I am doing is, is I'm simply living and working my values every day. Everything I feel strongly about, I've integrated into how I live my life and how I work my work. I have a question okay. that I ask everybody is every era has business cliches or jargon expressions that get stale pretty quickly. What is a, one of those that drives you crazy? Metaverse. And honestly, you know, I would direct everybody to James Watley's brilliant Metaverse, What Metaverse talk, which you can find if you 
follow me on LinkedIn. I posted about his talk uh, very recently because I was booked to speak to Worldwide Partners, the advertising reverse agency holding company, wonderful model, check them out. But they held their global summit in Amsterdam the week before last. And so they booked me to um, speak there. And James also spoke at the same event. And everybody should watch his Metaverse What Metaverse talk, because you will see why I loathe the term Metaverse. And very ironically, and I told him this when I saw him in Amsterdam, when Facebook rebranded as Meta, I bought the URL MetaverseWhatMetaverse.com. So James and I are clearly on the same wavelength. Um, we share the same level of skepticism. But nobody can explain better why this is my most loathed buzzword currently than James's talk. So I recommend everybody to watch it. Final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. If you want to go the body route, a recipe or a drink that is special to you, or if you want to go the soul route, a book, piece of music, art, movie, play that inspires you. And you can go both routes if you have inspiration on both sides. I would recommend to everybody my dear friend Thomas Hamoro Primozik's book. Because so Thomas wrote one of the most read Harvard Business Review articles of all time. He published it back in 2013. It was called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? And the premise of Thomas's article was he said, We talk quite rightly about all of the many barriers facing brilliant women. But a far bigger problem is the lack of obstacles for incompetent men. And this article was so popular that Tomas turned it into a book. The book is also called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It? And when you buy that book, you will see that I wrote one of the blurbs on it. I said, this is the single most important business leadership book of our time because I believe it is. So I recommend it to everybody. So that's food for the soul. And then food for the body, I would say... The thing that is a wonderful relaxer for me is my favorite cocktail, which is a Grey Goose Martini straight up with a twist. Very cold, very dry. I recommend that too. Thanks so much, Cindy. It's been great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for the really important work that you're doing. And it was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you very much for having me on. And I would just like to say to our listeners, if you like what I've said, please support my startup. Go to makelovenotporn.tv, join for free, Sign up for a subscription. They start at $10 a month. They're very affordable. Consider becoming a Make Love Not Porn star. And you can follow me and Make Love Not Porn at Cindy Gallup, at Make Love Not Porn on Twitter and Instagram. Connect with me on LinkedIn and you can follow me on Facebook as well. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, please leave a rating or a review and leave a stellar rating. Stay tuned because at the end of the credits, I will play a song by Susan Catania. I always say she's one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. And this year, she was nominated for Songwriter of the Year at the Boston Music Awards. So go vote for her at bostonmusicawards.com. Now, Cindy already mentioned where to find her, but if you want more information and links to everything that she mentioned, go to the podcast website, al4ep.com with the number four. You can also email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. 
This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged, and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. Picking a Susan song for the woman who calls herself the Michael Bay of business, who likes to blow shit up, was really easy. Here comes Wrecking Ball from Susan's record Brave and Wild. Inside 